0: please, to 1 Samuel 2. It's fitting on the Sunday that we dedicate our children to the Lord, that we look at uh, a woman who did this, um, that we look at Hannah, her husband Elkanah, and their dedication of Samuel. Is Samuel here? No, he's probably in children's church. Where's Adam? Good job. We have a Samuel. Is anybody else named Samuel, middle name? Samuel, middle name. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't know what I was thinking. Everybody calls you Sam, though, right? Okay. And then who else? I'm looking. Where are they? Okay. So Eli Samuel. So we have three Samuels then, one grown and two small, two little people, as Jonathan Wagner would say it, and Jimmy Cuffy. Um This morning, we're going to look at Samuel, and we're going to look at his mom and dad. And the story is in uh, 1 uh, 1 Samuel chapter 1. Now, before we read it, I want to make a couple of comments. Um, First of all, God, our Heavenly Father, takes a personal interest in the lives of his own. God, our Heavenly Father, takes a personal interest in the lives of his own. If God is aware when a sparrow falls, God is certainly aware of our situation in our marriage. God is aware of us being single and wanting a husband, a wife. God is aware when our womb is closed and we want it opened. God is aware when our parents die. God is aware when our husbands or wives fail us. God is aware of our sins against our husbands and wives. There's not a part of our lives, if he can count the hairs on our head, there's not a part of our lives that God does not know. All right? Certainly, God knows our condition relative to children and to the womb. As a matter of fact, in Psalm 127, we read... One to go. (laughs) There's another one, and I'm going to get them. (laughs) In Psalm 127, we read this. Behold, children are a decision of a couple. An act of stewardship. A choice. Behold, children are a gift of the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward Like arrows in the hand of a warrior, so are the children of one's youth. How blessed is the man whose quiver is full of them. They will not be ashamed when they speak with their enemies in the gate. God takes a personal interest in our lives, every aspect of them, and especially children. And when we get children, they're a gift from him. They're a reward from God. Contrary to the unintentionally often... Nevertheless, godless language so commonly heard from the lips of the technological man today. There is no such thing as an unplanned pregnancy. None. There is no such thing as a child who is an accident or a mistake. Unless that is one is disposed to discount God's planning and God's role in opening and closing the womb every child receives life directly from God, and his work is mysteriously beautiful. In Ecclesiastes 11 verse 5, it says, just as you do not know the path of the wind and how bones are formed in the womb of a pregnant woman, so you do not know the activity of God who makes all things. So newborns are still wonderful today, and children are still special, even in a country where yuppies and dinks are too busy making the bucks to bother with babies. Children are precious. Charles Dickens, the author of Tale of Two Cities and Oliver Twist, wrote, I love these little people, and it is not a slight thing when they who are so fresh from God love us. Robert Southey wrote, Call not that man wretched who whatever ills he suffers has a child to love. Jesus, they were bringing children to him, Mark ten thirteen, so that he might what? So that he might touch them. <laughs> Doesn't that seem weird? Well, he could have instructed them. He could have like downloaded his hard drive to theirs. Data transfer. (laughs) But he touched them, and they wanted him to touch them. I got a picture of this when I walked with Mother Teresa through the streets of downtown in St. Louis. We had her speak, and so we were escorting her to the place she was going to speak. Everywhere she went, she was surrounded by women who had pictures of their children and their grandchildren, and they were like flies, And they were reaching over one another's heads, jostling one another aggressively, trying to get her just to look at the picture of their children. I'm just telling you what happened. Jesus, what were they doing? They were fighting with each other, all those mothers, to get Jesus to touch their children. Were they stupid? No. But the disciples, being mature men, men, men-men, important men, inner circle men, the disciples rebuked them. But when Jesus saw this, he was indignant and said to them, Permit the children to come to me. Do not hinder them, for the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. Truly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God like a child will not enter it at all. And he, what? He blessed them. Is that what it says? He blessed them. Now it says he took them in his arms. A single man. Jesus was a single man. And he took the children in his arms and he blessed them. He touched them. He did what the parents wanted him to do. And he began blessing them, laying his hands on them. So God has given us our lives, our marriages, our homes, our singleness, our infertility, our fertility. And God has made children. And God has told us of his attitude towards children through his son, Jesus Christ. Now, once we've gotten all warm and fuzzy and gushy about children, we have not yet begun to do what we need to do about children. Because the fact is that the minute a child is conceived, a great battle for the soul of that child is joined. And those of us who understand the gift and beauty of children have not yet begun to know what we need to know until we see the battle lines that are drawn for the soul of that child. Right? right? And nobody is a fit parent who is not willing to perpetually wage war for the soul of their children. And homes where there is not war being waged for the souls of children are homes that aren't Christian. Because children are at the center of a great, great conflict, right? Children mean much more than snips and snails and puppy dog tails. With each child that's born, an eternal battle is joined. The combat lines are pitched for the soul of that little one, and we must be on our guard, lest in these years of sentimental love and affection we turn a blind eye and a deaf ear to the war cries that surround us and this little one we so dearly love, lest because of our blindness and deafness and sentimentality these little ones are offended by us. Children are not just joy and happiness and warmth, are they? They're also the heaviest responsibilities that parents will ever have. No other duty comes close to matching the seriousness of our duty before God to watch over and care for these little ones who belong to him. Why? Because these children don't belong to us. They belong to God. And God's call comes long before our children grow up and become adults. It starts in the womb. Now let's look at Samuel, who also belonged to God when he was in the womb. His mother, Hannah, in her grief, promised God that if he would give her a son, that she would give that son back to him. Let's read the account then of 1 Samuel chapter 1, verses 21 to 28, the entire chapter. Now there was a certain man from Ramathaim Zophim. From the hill country of Ephraim, and his name was Elkanah, the son of Jerome, the son of Elihu, the son of Tohu, the son of Zuth, an Ephraimite. He had two wives. The name of one was Hannah, and the name of the other, Penina. And Penina had children, but Hannah had no children. Now this man would go up from his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts in Shiloh. And the two sons of Eli, Hophni and Phinehas, were priests to the Lord there. When the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Benina, his wife, and to all her sons and her daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah. But the Lord had closed her womb. Her rival, however, would provoke her bitterly to irritate her because the Lord had closed her womb. It happened year after year, as often as she went up to the house of the Lord. She would provoke her. So she wept and would not eat. Then Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, why do you weep and why do you not eat? And why is your heart sad? Am I not better to you than ten sons? Then Hannah rose after eating and drinking in Shiloh. Now Eli, the priest, was sitting on the seat by the doorpost of the temple of the Lord. She, greatly distressed, prayed to the Lord and wept bitterly. She made a vow and said, O Lord of hosts, if you will indeed look on the affliction of your maidservant and remember me, and not forget your maidservant, but will give your maidservant a son, then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life, and a razor shall never come on his head. Now it came about, as she continued praying before the Lord, that Eli was watching her mouth. As for Hannah, she was speaking in her heart. Only her lips were moving, but her voice was not heard, so Eli thought she was drunk. Then Eli said to her, How long will you make yourself drunk? Put away your wine from you. But Hannah replied, No, my Lord, I am a woman oppressed in spirit. I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have poured out my soul before the Lord. Do not consider your maidservant as a worthless woman, for I have spoken until now out of my great concern and provocation. Then Eli answered and said, Go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant your petition that you have asked of him. She said, Let your maidservant find favor in your sight. So the woman went her way and ate, and her face was no longer sad. Then they rose, arose early in the morning and worshipped before the Lord and returned again to their house in Ramoth. And Elkanah had relations with Hannah, his wife, and the Lord remembered her. It came about in due time, after Hannah had conceived, that she gave birth to a son, and she named him Samuel, saying, Because I have asked him of the Lord. Then the man, Elkanah, went up with all his household to offer to the Lord the yearly sacrifice and pay his vow. But Hannah did not go up, for she said to her husband, I will not go up until the child is weaned. Then I will bring him, that he may be appear before the Lord and stay there forever." Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Do what seems best to you. Remain until you have weaned him. Only may the Lord confirm his word. So the woman remained and nursed her son until she weaned him. Now, when she had weaned him, she took him up with her with a three-year-old bull and one ephah of flour and a jug of wine and brought him to the house of the Lord in Shiloh, although the child was young. Then they slaughtered the bull and brought the boy to Eli. She said, "O my Lord, as your soul lives? My Lord, I am the woman who stood here beside you praying to the Lord for this boy. I prayed and the Lord has given me my petition, which I asked of him. So I have also dedicated him to the Lord as long as he lives. He is dedicated to the Lord and he worshiped the Lord there. Let's first look at this story and see what there is there for us that is particularly applicable to our lives. And then end by looking at a couple of principles for us as we raise our children and dedicate them to the Lord. First of all, what's the significance of Samuel and of the placement of this story in the book of 1 Samuel? Well, if you have a Bible, flip over a couple of pages and you'll come to the end of Judges. Israel had judges over her. And then she transitioned to having kings and prophets. Samuel is the last judge, and Samuel is the first prophet. What kind of a context, a cultural environment was Samuel born into? Well, if you look at the last verse of the book of Judges, you'll see the summary of the book of Judges. is a perfect summary of America and the Western world today. Absolutely perfect. Perfect summary of the emergent church today. Perfect. What is it? It says, in those days there was no king in Israel, and then everyone did what was right in his own eyes. In the old King James, each man did that which was right in his own eyes. And this is a perfect summary of perfect wickedness in a nation. That every man does that which is right in his own eyes. We call it personal autonomy. We call it freedom and liberty. There's no resemblance to what our forefathers meant when they said every man has a right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. To them, liberty was more responsibility than you even had corporately. Liberty meant that a man was free to live by a higher standard. That's what liberty meant to our forefathers. But today, liberty to us means that you can even sink below the masses and have perfect impunity to be every bit as perverse and disgusting and autonomous and to not have one social contract that you are obligated by, except the ones the government enforces at the end of a gun. So when you hear liberty today, it has no resemblance to what our forefathers meant. They meant that they could leave England and have a higher standard of worship, a higher standard of the Christian life that they were free to live under more holiness of God, more of the truths of Scripture, not less, and certainly not none. Freedom of religion then was freedom of denomination. All right. Each man did that which was right in his own eyes. In other words, they had perfect freedom as Americans understand it today. Perfect freedom. Every man did that which was right in his own eyes. And so that is the context into which Samuel's born. That's the context for, for his father and his mother, for Elkanah and for Hannah. Now, in that disgusting, perverse environment is a godly family. And how do we know they're godly? Well, because when we look at the text, what we see is, verse 3, this man... Cana, would go up from his city yearly to worship and to sacrifice to the Lord of hosts. Okay? In Shiloh. And so here's a man that lives in a time when each man does that, which is right in his own eyes. And he takes his whole family and he goes up yearly, makes a pilgrimage, no cars, no trains, no airplanes makes the pilgrimage to Shiloh and makes offerings of praise and thanksgiving and of his wealth, his money, which is his cattle in every, you know, agrarian society. It's your cattle, right? Okay. And he goes up there and he brings his family with him. So we know that this is a godly man. All right. When the day came that Elkanah sacrificed, he would give portions to Benina, his wife, and to all her sons and her daughters. But to Hannah, he would give a double portion, for he loved Hannah, but the Lord had closed her womb. Now, what would I say about this? Well, number one, I'd say he had two wives. And as would be true in such a situation, one he loved and the other he didn't. Now, it doesn't say he didn't love Penina, right? It doesn't say that. What it says is he loved Hannah, and you are right to extrapolate from that that he probably didn't love Benina the way he loved Hannah, right? He wasn't just sympathy, pity for her, giving her a double portion. He loved her. Do you know that the Bible commands men with more than one wife that they are not to cease having sexual relations with the wife that they don't love? You know that the Bible commands men that they are to continue to go into the wife that they don't love. They're not to cut her off. Isn't that interesting? Now does that mean that the Bible endorses polygamy? No. It doesn't endorse it. But like many things where we live in sinful conditions, the Bible does exhort us not to, not to pile sin on sin, but to live in sinful situations in such a way that it honors God. God is concerned about the wife that isn't loved. God is concerned about the wife that is divorced for younger flesh. God is concerned about the woman who hasn't had a man ask for her hand in marriage. God is concerned about the child who has a handicap. God is concerned for the oppressed and the weak and the cast-offs. He has a preferential option for the poor. And so here we say, see that God has provided two things for Hannah. Number one, a husband that loves her more than the other woman, gives her a double portion. And number two, God has provided for her by closing her womb. Now, it's very politically incorrect today to ever talk about God's agency in giving children. But even if you're willing to have somebody talk about giving children being a blessing from the Lord, which is pretty gnarly, absolutely nobody will allow you to talk about infertility as God's direct action. Now, why is that? Well, it's because in the modern world we sacrifice the normal on the altar of the abnormal. In our effeminate culture, we're so concerned to never do anything that will jeopardize any of our relationships that we deny truths that are as plain as the nose on the end of our faces in an effort to be so compassionate and sensitive to people who suffer. And what ends up happening is... We patronize people, and we refuse to allow them to grieve over their condition because we force them to to confess their condition as just a differently abled and not a handicap. We sacrifice the normal on the altar of the abnormal. And so, can you imagine, out of, out of a thousand churches today that preach on this text maybe around the world, how many of them do you think make any point that wounds that are shut are shut by God? I mean, that's gnarly. Do, do, do you think that pastors are saying that today? They're sacrificing the normal on the altar of the abnormal. We're so concerned about not offending the women of this church That we don't allow anybody to mourn the handicap God has given them with. And therefore, we can never celebrate when God takes the handicap away. In other words, if God has no agency in shutting Hannah's womb, then nobody's going to rejoice and point to God when she has a child. We just eviscerate our lives of God's agency. He's certain not there. You know, you remember when What's-His-Face from Houston was on Larry King, and Larry King's asked him, you know, what about these catastrophes, Katrina, and these other things, and and, and this What's-His-Face from Houston's, like, saying, you know, well, well, that's not God, and Larry King's like, but I thought God was God. And he's like, well, no, God isn't God. I mean, Mother Nature's God. You know, and Larry King says, but I thought God was God. And he says, well, well, I mean, my God wouldn't do that. My God wouldn't shut a woman's womb. My God's nice. Listen. When my mother and father lost three children, one after another after another, either God took those children or I'm godless, I'm out of here, and I'm going to earn my living honestly. Okay? Either God takes our children and gives our children, either God is the one who makes the eyes that see and the eyes that are blind, the ears that hear and the ears that are deaf, or I'm out of here and you're a bunch of fools. God is God. God opens the womb. God shuts the womb. The woman whose womb is shut is perverse if she doesn't grieve it. And her husband's perverse if he requires her to act as if they've been blessed in a special way that they can have a lake home. And they leave houses where they're filled with children. And he says, honey, aren't you happy that we can leave that house and not have the burden of all those children that that poor woman has? I mean, think about this. It's such a twisted world we live in. We sacrifice the normal on the altar of the abnormal. We're so busy trying to act as if nobody has any special suffering that the blind person can't call themselves blind. They just say that they're differently abled. And I'll grant you that the blind person has extra special perceptivity in their ears. But it doesn't make up for blindness. And I'll grant you that the woman that has had her womb shut by God is extra specially able to care for the children of the church in the way the other mothers aren't. But she's still in grief. we have to begin to cut ourselves off from a culture that tries to silence everything about God that's true and begin to embrace Scripture in such a way that we have a culture of our own. And we don't try to hide it. That we say, you know, the woman whose husband has cast her off for younger flesh is recognized. And when her story will be written, it will be written, the woman who casts his wife off for younger flesh. And in the Bible it's always recorded that way. The Bible doesn't lie about us. It doesn't lie about our pains. It doesn't lie about our griefs. It doesn't patronize us by acting as if our handicap is actually different ability. The Bible Let's us grieve the bible lets us stand at the grave of our children and see god's hand and say the lord gives and the lord takes and blessed be the name of the lord and then when that womb that is sterile that is infertile that is not fruitful can you say those words can you say those words Then when that womb gives birth, you are free to know that that's God that opened the womb. It's not you making a choice to have a child. You had God give you a baby. That swelling in your gut is God. it's not fertile and sterile, it's God. If it's swelling and fruitful, it's God. God's everywhere. If you're not married, it's God. If you're married to a rotter, it's God. God doesn't need you to patronize Him. He doesn't need you to protect him from having people think ill of him. It doesn't escape him that America's aborting 1.3 million of her children every year. That's God! And if one woman decides to walk out of that abortuary and save her child, that's God! (laughs) You know what my parents said? They said, every single time they walked away from the grave of one of their children, they were more certain of the love of God than any other time of their life. The love. And they also said that when they walked away from the grave of one of their children, it was always more difficult for their friends to see the love of God in that than it was for them. You know, really, when we patronize people who are blind and deaf and sterile and handicapped, It's not about them. We don't really care about them. What we want to do is not have to take on the extra burden that we should take on for them. It's all about us. You know that song Jody sang yesterday? You know? Jenna, where are you? She's gone. Well, you come up and sing it. Yeah. Yeah, sing it. Yeah, he needs a mic. Bash yesterday. This is a reprise. Well, this this is my impression, actually Jenna's impression of Christian music. It not very dissimilar from an actual song. We just tweaked it a little bit. It's And you have to sort of like massage the mic a little bit. Yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so. so it's, it, yeah. <clears throat> It's all about me, it's all about me, it's all about me, 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 me. Sometimes I say you, but I really mean me. It's all about me, loving you, loving me. Thank you. I'm sure glad he didn't use a kazoo. Okay, so why is it that we refuse to recognize the heartbreak of sterility of a barren womb? It's not really because we care about the woman who suffers it and her husband. But it's really because we do not want to have to look grief And sorrow in the face. That's it. That's the reason. Okay? Now let's look at Hannah honestly. Her heart was breaking, right? And her husband is an idiot, as husbands typically are. How do I know he's an idiot? Well, look at the text. The text says, verse 8, Elkanah, her husband, said to her, Hannah, it's all about me. Why do you weep and why do you not eat? And why, is your heart said, am I not better to you than ten sons? (laughs) I mean, it's hilarious. The answer is no. Why? Because it's not about you. And it's not about the mother to either, is it? You haven't begun to understand women until you've understand, understood what? It's about her children. Do you know that everybody tells you when you're a woman that the path to your husband's heart lies through his stomach? And if you haven't been told that, your mother didn't tell you what you needed to know, the single thing you needed to know to get married. It's even more than the marriage bed. The path to a man's heart goes through his stomach, okay? The path to a woman's heart goes through her children. It's a foolish pastor that doesn't know the name of most, if not all, the children of the church. Even if he doesn't care about them, he better memorize the names. (laughs) I've told you the story before. I worked with another pastor once, came over to our kitchen, and Hannah was very young at the time, and uh, hannah while he sat there in our kitchen hannah drew up a picture and then came and offered this man a gift from the love of her heart to him and he just sat there and didn't acknowledge the presence of this beautiful little daughter holding up a picture for him and finally i looked at the man (laughs) and my wife was watching and i said to him you know john or whatever his name was hey john my wife is watching you, and there's a child trying to give you a gift, and, and if you want my wife to like you, you better take the gift. <laughs> and so he reaches down, and he, and he takes a gift, and he says, thanks, Anna. I mean, he didn't even give her half a second, but he did what I told him to do. A mother won't like a man like that. So, no, it's it's not true. Um you are not worth twice as much as a child she wants a child all of feminism can deny it i don't give a rip about them they're a bunch of idiots they have cultivated stupidity you talk to even the most feminist woman i can remember being out in western mass and having this whole huge room filled with asian women almost all of them were asian and men and there was this, and I so I taught about the beauty of motherhood and childbearing and marriage, and I said, this is what it means to confess Christ in a sophisticated academic environment—that you don't give up on that, right? And oh, they were mad, hyperachieving Asians. Oh, they were just furious, and one of them excelled all the others in being livid at me, publicly excoriating me. I mean, she just in my face, punch, 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 you know. So what do you think happened? Same thing happened in anthropology class here. Class of about 100, 150, almost completely women. All right? Because it was a class in, in, in the sexuality of linguistics or linguistics or something like that. Right? And so I got up and basically said the same thing, you know? And because they wanted me to talk about, bible translation and gender marked words and sex and stuff like that so you know i got up and you know what i'd say right and so afterwards there's this one woman who was like in my face in the question and answer period both those women afterwards when i was alone with them what did they say then they said I want to be a wife, and I want to be a mother, but my experience of family life is so awful that I will not make myself vulnerable to another man. It's all about children to a woman. Elkanah says, okay, aren't I worth double, more than ten sons? And the answer is no, you're not. And so she gets, she's, she's, uh, she rose after eating and drinking, and she went, she prayed, Because then everybody read or prayed out loud. Nobody ever did it silently. The priest thinks she's drunk. He rebukes her. She says, no, it's my heart. It's not alcohol that has brought me to this way. Okay? And so she says to him uh, that if the Lord gives her, and she says this to the Lord, that if the Lord gives her a child, what? We see in verse 11. Verse 11. I will give your maids then I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life. And she, she says he'll be a Nazarite. Now, I'm out of time, so let me quickly end. Um, the Lord then opens her womb, okay? Hannah, Elkanah has relations with Hannah. Please notice, the Bible is not, pr- is not prudish. Twice this morning, you've had sex in the Bible, in public read. Twice. They had relations. You know, you ever think about my relations? (laughs) You know, they had relations. All right? So don't become effeminate, soft, like uh, sterile kind of Americans who have sex everywhere else except in church. You know, turn on the radio, turn on the television. If you get any Ph.D. in the modern university, it's really a Ph.D. in sexuality. I mean, you know, everything's about sex, but they call it gender. And then when we come to church, we're not supposed to talk about it. The Bible's filled with it. They had relations, okay? They had relations, and she was pregnant by God's hand. And then here's here's what I want to end with. Two things. Number one, would you please notice with me what happens? She doesn't go back up on the annual pilgrimage to Shiloh, right? She says to her husband what? She says... I will not go up, verse 22, until the child is weaned. That would have been at about three years of age at the time. I won't go up until he's about three years of age. And then I will bring him that he may appear before the Lord and stay there forever. Now, have you ever thought about that? How bodacious is this woman to make a vow to God and then to tell her husband about it when the baby's born that this child pretty soon is going to be gone? Because she made a vow, and this child's going to go up and stay in Shiloh and be raised within the religious priest's families. Have you ever thought about that? Hannah acknowledges this child's a gift from God. She made a vow. Her husband knew nothing about it. And she promised that child to God, and when he says time to go, she says, now leave me here until the child's weaned. Then we'll take the child up. That child belongs to God, and he'll stay up there permanently, and we'll never have him again. We're so busy thinking about how horrible this would be for Hannah to fulfill her vow, we never think about the poor husband. Now, if we believe in submission, I want you to understand that is a biblical marriage. Do you realize that God gave us wives as helpmates? Wives are supposed to make commitments like that. Now, the husband has the authority to reverse it, but he'd be a fool to reverse it. Because he knows the character of his wife. And so when she makes a vow about their child, he submits to it. And that's a beautiful marriage. And it's a fool who oppresses the godliness of his wife in the name of his authority. Okay? Yeah, we believe in submission. And here's submission. He submits to her willingly. And you say, but a husband shouldn't submit to his wife. I say, oh, come on. Who's ever going to prick your pride if it isn't your wife? Oh, I got wasted yesterday, me. And it was while I was still in bed in the morning. She sat down. She said, I have a few things I want to talk to you about. It's like, do you want it now or later? That's, she actually said that to me. Now, honey, Please. And I got wasted. In a few minutes, I was outside apologizing for what I had said to my wife in front of my son, Taylor, as he's cutting the grass. If you have an idea of the leadership of a husband over his wife because of the order of creation that does not allow you to embrace the vow that's godly that your wife has taken. Do you understand this? then you don't have an understanding of biblical marriage. And what does he say? Look at it. Elkan, her husband said to her, Do what seems best to you. Right on. <laughs> All right. Until you have weaned him, only then may the Lord confirm his word. And so the time comes, and she goes up. Now, when she goes up, she takes an offering, and the offering is her son, right? Is that right? I mean, who could ask for more from a woman than the offering of her only son? Right? Am I right about that? I mean, that is a work of supererogation if there ever was one. (laughs) David, I'm talking to you. You couldn't ask for anything more than that. Ah, wrong. Look at it. Look at it. When she had weaned him, she took him up with her with a three-year-old bull and an ephah of flour and a jug of wine. She took her son, and she took her money. She didn't back out of her commitment one bit. She didn't trim the edges of her vow she was faithful she was faithful publicly and she didn't think that that was such a work of supererogation, such a tremendous act of self-sacrifice that she didn't have to take any money she didn't have to take the bowl she didn't have to take the flowers she didn't have to take the wine think about that that's incredible now one last thing look at the last verse it says so i have also dedicated him to the lord as long as he was he's dedicated to the lord and he worshiped the lord there who does he refer to Elkanah? Does it refer to Eli? Samuel. How old was he? Three. It says about Samuel when she left him there, he was three years old and he worshipped the Lord there. Can children who are three worship God? We don't act as if they can, do we? We patronize children. Not until you're 21 and make a really responsible decision after moving out of the home will we ever recognize the work of the Holy Spirit in your life. Let me tell you something. The kingdom of God is made up of such as these. Samuel was godly and worshipped God. Starting with the age of three, but I don't think starting then. I think he already had been at home. He'd been trained by his children. Listen, two things. Number one. From the time they're in the womb, they are worshiping God and they are set apart by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit doesn't have these arbitrary ages of accountability and ages where the elders will be willing to believe in all that crud that we have. The Holy Spirit is a wind that blows where it listeth. Okay, that's the truth. And so don't, don't sell your children short. Every Christian couple, every parent that's a Christian sells their children short does not expect enough out of them intellectually, does not expect enough out of them physically, does not expect enough out of them spiritually. There may be one child in this church I've ever seen that too much was expected out of him. Okay? And that child belongs to, um, to Jiho and Mary Ann Kim. And I may be wrong. I don't want to meddle. But Judah is precocious. But all the rest of you, you don't expect enough out of your children. Okay? They can worship God at the age of three and two and one. And Jill Crum, who's had many children, says she loves to sit in the church on Sunday morning, Lord's Day. Pregnant, so that her children in the womb can be under the preaching of the word. Now, that lady's fully twisted. Or she's right. And I think she's right. Okay, so don't expect too little out of your children. Don't patronize people with handicaps. Grieve with those who grieve and laugh with those who laugh. Don't allow American culture to determine you. Look at children as a blessing. Don't think that you've done such a wonderful thing that you don't have to worship God because he'll have to accept you because you gave your child. Take the ox, take the ephah with you, and recognize the spirituality of children.